welcome to the 48th episode of the Sausage Factory, which is brought to you by Spong.com and hosted by me, Chris O'Regan. In this show, we interview video game developers and ask them about their style industry, what the influences are and who inspires them. Split into two halves, the show initially focuses on the developer themselves, and in the second half we discuss the game they're here to promote, which in this case is Warhammer Quest, which has been ported by Chilled Mouse onto the PC. Ian, tell us about yourself. Who are you and what do you do? Hi, yeah, so I'm Ian Baverstock. I'm one of the directors of Chilled Mouse. Um, I'm a long-standing member of the UK games development community, I guess. I've been around a long time. Um, Started off making games way back in the late 80s, early 90s. And as a developer, I was the you know, one of the founders and the chief exec at Kuju for a long time. So part of the kind of old school console work for hire development community in the UK. These days I do bits of consultancy, bits of investing in games. But one of the things we've set up recently is Chilled Mouse, which is a new publisher. And its first title is Warhammer Quest, as you say. That's so quite a history there. You know, barreled your way through it. So your very early beginnings was, what, programming on an 8-bit machine? Uh, so but beginnings actually were interesting. There um, were a bunch of founders of a general company that preceded Kuju, which was called Simis. Um, it, it turned out to be the same company. We all worked together at what was then British Aerospace making flight sims. Okay. Making them for test pilots to fly. And uh, they were pretty much glorified, very expensive, taxpayer-funded video games. Yes. And uh, we kind of set up on our own, doing all sorts of things, but it was the the simulation side of what we did for entertainment that stuck over the years. So we ended up with a games developer from a sort of professional software, if you like, environment. Because they were extraordinary machines, though, weren't they? I mean, those flight sims were they're running on, well... I don't know, you could tell me, but... Yeah, no, they were, they were at the time, very technically advanced, but actually that led us very nicely into the 32-bit era and sort of early early PCs, and, and from there into the early 3D graphics cards. So I think we were quite technically adept and quite advanced at, at that period. You know, it was very easy for us to kind of move into that space. So what were they then? Could you tell us? What, the machines that we were Yeah. What... Yeah, they were all sorts of custom bits of electronics. I mean, you know, it, it was... It's sad to say, really, it was kind of very significant amounts of money for two or three test pilots to play for a few hours at a time. And it <laughs> almost seems sad when you think we could take the same sort of configurable software and turn it into entertainment that tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people could play once the PC hardware caught up with it. Yeah, it was all, so it's basically, I was going to say, an arc, it's arcade machine-like because a lot of the time back in the day, video games were built around the game or the hardware was built. In certainly in early parts, that changed when the Jammer stuff came in. I'm just trying to equate here to try to relate myself and the listener to this extraordinary realm because I remember seeing flight simulators going, how are they displaying those graphics? How are they doing that? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting for us because we were not making flight software. We weren't making things that ever went into a real aircraft. We were making things that were for engineering purposes. So we could use sort of anything we liked. We actually had more remit, more, you know, more freedom than perhaps the flight guys did. So we were using all sorts of bits of electronics from, you know, anywhere we could find them, and, you know, very high end some of it. So it was good fun. It was it was great fun to be able to do that sort of thing. 
but it, you know eventually you end up running your own business and you can't as a small company make money selling things to people like the MOD it's just too difficult whereas people loved the software we wrote from an entertainment point of view and a lot of what we've done was centered even back then around the area of you being able to build your own missions lay out your own uh, campaigns and that was obviously a fairly new thing to put into games in those days yeah i was just thinking when I mean, you said the 32-bit area so when that happened were you i mean you were aware of it were you quite excited to see the the mainstream well you know suddenly these windows 95 arrived and and, and also the playstation arrived was that like your trigger point going oh, okay now now it's finally caught up that we can do something yeah we, we definitely were very happy to kind of see real powerful hard what we thought of then as very powerful hardware arriving that was that was good i think by that stage we already had quite a lot of people making games for different publishers so we were already then nose to the grindstone you know trying to keep keep the business moving forwards keep new projects coming in and fairly quickly got into that that mode that work for hire developers do of you know you need a, the next big project from a publisher who's going to pay you his milestones on time Yes, the the great design program. We're not talking about programming here. We're talking about a Gantt chart full of yep. milestones, most of which <laughs> are like that's a work of what? what? That doesn't even. No, um, but yeah, yeah, I can I can uh, empathise with that and sympathise with your plight. But if you meet those magical milestones plucked out from some producer's head, great, go you. Uh, provided that what's delivered is what's required, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so just moving swiftly on then to, I mean, let's say you're, you're making your start and you, you worked, you had Kuju for a very long time and now you, you've, you've gone off and created Chilled Mouse, which is new publisher, um, starting off with that in mind, what do you think? I mean, this is, it sounds like you've got more of a business head on right now as opposed to creation, or maybe I'm wrong, but what what are your influences, do you think? Well, I think, so if if we sort of go back a bit, I don't want to sort of dwell on, on history, but I think as a developer for many years where you were being, you were basically being driven by the need to, to do projects that kept your, your staff employed and kept the company growing. And, you know, I don't want to do that anymore. Kuju is a great company. I still love it. And, you know, it's still successful in, in all sorts of ways. But from my perspective now, we we sort of, uh, myself and the other founder who was still with me, Jonathan, you know, when we finished at Kuju, what we didn't want to do was jump straight back into one of those kind of modes of, of being stuck in that, in that sort of chasing other projects all the time. So, you know, the idea that we can pick and choose what we do is very important. And I think it's taken us a while as well to sort of get up the courage, I guess, to go let's go and try publishing because we know that a lot of developers look at publishing and go, you know, how hard can it be? All they've got to do is market it and put some money behind something and then they just collect all the big fat checks. And actually, I know it's, it's pretty hard to do this job well. So we've wanted to come at this carefully and in a considered way. So there is definitely that business perspective on it. I mean, this is the games industry and there isn't a lot of free money around. So if you don't have a business perspective, you've always got a problem. Right. The reality is you've got to do something that you know you think is going to be high quality and ultimately is something where you, you can head towards making hits and, and making great games because those are the things that really make money. So really the inspiration is to make good games. 
yes make them happen and uh yes uh, uh, neil gaiman did this amazing speech to these uh, art undergraduates who had just been who just graduated and he was talking about you know if you do anything else just make good art it sounds really sort of simple but then the best ideas are it's like yeah just say just but just make good make good stuff yeah making good stuff i think is absolutely the bottom line you've got to do that it sells itself that way you know you're trying to it's it's that's the way it works it 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 it, it, uh when i see things especially in music industry where you see all this um a lot of especially uh, recently is just it's um dog and pony show stuff there's nothing there there's no substance to it uh, in certain parts of the music realm. And you go, that's why it's rubbish. <laughs> no one's buying this because no one's buying it. No one's buying your what, what you're selling here. It's guff, isn't it? And um, because of lack of integrity and lack of you know, creativity, and it's quite dull. Whereas, you know, as with video games, that's, you know, that can definitely, definitely fall into that trap too. But you're right. Just... And it's good, great to be influenced by, make good stuff and be drawn to good stuff, and it will sell itself. And it's been proven time and time and time again. Okay. I, I certainly think you've got to make good stuff. I think in this modern age, you've got to have one eye on how people find out about it. And if you're a successful artist in any space, yes, then, you know people will know about your product because they're already interested in it. They'll, they'll know about what you create. And you can just be free to focus on the art. I think it helps a lot, though, if you're trying to establish a reputation, that you do something which um, people might well find it easy to hear about or to learn about for whatever reason. So one of the things that we'll come on to when we talk about, about Warhammer Quest is for us as a first product to publish, the fact that it's a title which has a long pedigree and is in a well-known gaming space. Yes. Because it meant that we, frankly, could make a few mistakes about getting people to know about the game and we mm-hmm. still had some safety margin there. Yeah, because it's, hey, it's Warhammer and it's a board game. You can't buy anymore unless you go on eBay for £5,000. So it's, you know, it's really lovely to see games like this and Space Hulk uh, which I'm not saying it's competitor, but there's some similarities between the two in that they're both ports of board games, uh, very different board games, but uh, they are based on the Warhammer universe and uh, they're both based on games you can't buy anymore. Yep. <laughs> so not in real sort of tactile manner anyway, but you can buy them now. Um, so with that in mind, who do you admire in the industry? Do you think who's doing it right and... You should say, yep, I'll tip my hat to their their efforts. Right, so the guys I I really most admire are the ones who've managed to carve out for themselves both, you know, a very clear position as people making great games, you know, whether that's Telltale, people like Tim Schafer. Actually, I I really admire the guys at Rebellion as well. I really admire the Kingsley Brothers more because I think I understand exactly how they came you know where they've come from because it was so close to my own roots and you know in the UK industry. Yeah. You've got this situation where people who've who've started off in a space where they were paid by third parties, paid by publishers to make games, have moved very successfully into a position where the public admire them for their art, for the for the quality of their games, and then they are being very successful 
business people as well so they're actually sustainably building you know more of this stuff they're not trying to become huge but equally you know they're, they're, they're staying at a scale which means they can get things done which are a very high quality so I've got a lot of time for people like that okay it's a very difficult balance to strike yes and some people just don't nope. um, and um, there's there's some people it's weird you get the same studio same outfit producing one amazing piece of, of, of type one amazing piece of game in entertainment I'm gonna I was going to mention a name, but you might balk at it, but I won't mention it. But this, and then on the other hand, they make something that's just quite frankly atrocious. And you're like, how did that happen? <laughs> it's like, hang on, you're from the same staple, you're the same group, yet you made this. Um, and it's, there's, there are some quirks there, but on the whole, you're right. It's uh, those, those who can have that balance between not overstretching themselves because that happens a lot in the industry as well well this is it i think i think we underestimate we forget really sometimes that in every other creative uh, medium there's always that issue of the sort of tricky second album right it's (laughs) difficult to go from how and often actually even the successful first album that we all know about wasn't the first album so often they've you know they've tried to do things they've learned the trade they get it right and then it's really hard to follow up for all kinds of obvious reasons because you don't, as a as a producer, ever want to kind of undershoot the previous title or the you know whichever it is that you're producing. And and actually, you have to admire people who've managed to to sort of structure what they do in such a way that they go on growing their 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 reputation, the quality of their products, and their business over a reasonably long period of time. I think that's really hard to do. Yeah. Um, Telltale Games, um, a good example of that as well. Um, they they made some extraordinary titles over the, over the years. So, yes, um, finding that that fine balance of uh, not overstretching yourselves and actually building on what you've done in the past, yes. whilst actually evolving. Yeah, that's that's that's, that's key. Um, and like I say, those those people who've kind of made the transition from the relatively low risk model which which was what we used to do at Kuju where you were making games for somebody else mm. to one where your own money and reputation are all on the line with with the products you're making that's that's a that's a really brave and difficult thing to do and you've got to admire people who managed to get that right and looking 20 30 years ago which it sounds like you started then maybe 20 years ago now and looking forward now you see how fragmented things are did you see this coming so I I was quite controversial at one point by saying I thought developers had to get a lot bigger. That was probably, when would that have been? That would have been about 10, 12 years ago. And that was at a time when we were growing Kuju very quickly and it, you know, it ended up with 300-odd staff in six different offices. And I think there was a point where um, you needed scale you, because the games were all focused on a fairly limited number of platforms and those platforms were in a kind of fight to the death about the production qualities and the graphics quality and, and the size of the games they were producing. So I I think that sort of consolidation phase was quite predictable. I think the current fragmentation that we're seeing, that was harder to predict, and I really don't know where we'll go from here because I think some types of games, um, you know, particularly the free-to-play games, I think are going to start to get to be very big again and will need lots of money and lots of manpower to make them work. But I don't know how original most of those games are. I don't know how much creativity mm. is going into those games. Interesting you mentioned that because today, I think it's today, uh, although it's not a topical show, but recently happened, 
that Apple made a section on the site on their app store which says pay once only games or apps. Mm. So like it's a special section. These are games or things you buy one off and that's it. Yeah, I think and well, that's, that's interesting. If I was, if I was Apple or, or Google, I'd be worried about the kind of constant pressure. And this I think will be true for Steam as well. You know, I'd be worried about an overwhelming move to free to play because yeah. there are whole whole areas of gaming that can't fit into that model. No. And they don't want to lose those customers. They don't want to lose no. that audience any more than, than we as players or producers, you know, we no. as players or developers want to lose those opportunities. So we we need to keep making sure that the public who want, for example, a good story-led, a good narrative-led game can still find one and there's still a market that sustains that and they can't get them. You know, if they can't get them because everything has to be free-to-play, then that's bad for everyone. Exactly. Um, I don't really play any free-to-play games right now. I'm trying to think. Nope. No, I'm not. Let's see. It's mainly Elite Dangerous and WoW. So, yeah. No, I'm not playing any free-to-play games right now. So, um, it's... Uh, it's just, I just I find it difficult. I don't know how much to put into them. That's my big problem with them. It's like, I don't know. I like this game, but I don't know how much to give them. <laughs> Maybe two quid or something. Is that- yeah, you see, I, I kind of like... The one thing I do like about them is I play games where I'm into the game. They're quite casual, and but they're always much better, these games, if you play with other people that you know. Yes. And if they're free, you don't have any problem saying to anyone and everyone, you know, come and play this game with me because you're not asking them to spend any money. Just time. <laughs> it's just time. And and I think, you know, there is a place for them. I, I wouldn't want to sit here and say, you know, we shouldn't have them, that they're always a bad thing. I, I think they're just a particular part of the industry. They work in a particular way. And for some types of games, because especially if you want lots of friends in there playing with you, um, you know, they have an edge. Yes. They do. I like that idea of this easy distribution between friends. Mm. It's it's non-threatening. No, exactly. No, no. And for me, I've you know I've definitely had people playing in some of those games with me who, frankly, would they would just never have played if they'd been required to pay up front. There's just yeah. no way they'd have ever played. So the final question of the first half. It's my favourite one. Um, is uh, what are you playing right now? And it can be anything. It can be tabletop as well. So. Um, uh, well, okay, that's interesting because I've just been playing a bunch of games for um, a task. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to say, but anyway, I was judging something. a competition judging recently. Something. All right, I got you, got you. Judging something recently, so I had a playlist from them, so I, okay. I, I you know, was playing through all of those. That must be fun. And it, well, it is fun because you get um, other people's, it's, it's a list that comes from somebody else. Right, and, you know, it forces you to play things that you wouldn't necessarily play. So I was playing, for example, Forza Two, um, uh, Forza Horizon, and I really uh, liked it. I really enjoyed it, which I don't normally do. I'm not really into driving games at There's all. Something but... about the Forza games. I have a friend of mine who's an absolute driving nut. Cannot stand Forza because he says the engine's broken. Yeah. I can't tell. <laughs> no, well, I, I mean, I think I, I'm pretty bad at driving games, but I was really yeah. enjoying it. I thought it was that was well done. Yeah. Um, so you know, that's probably the one I was playing the most recently. Okay. So that was good. Um, and then I do try and play, like I say, quite a wide variety. So I've been trying to play some of the free-to-play games as well. Recently, I was playing Tribal Wars, which I quite like. Um, it's quite an interesting game, and I played a lot of strategy games in my time. So. Okay. That one fitted well. 
Yeah, I mean, Forza Horizon 2, I, we mean to get hold of that, but, uh, um, yeah, distracted by other shiny things. Mm. It's probably really cheap now. <laughs> uh, that's another thing. The, the, the value depreciation of games in the UK is astonishing. Well, I think that's true everywhere. That's for yeah. sure. Well, I found it less so in North America. I think they hold their price a little longer. Oh, that's good. I'm sure why, but they do hold their price a lot longer than they do over here uh, in Europe. It's a peculiarity of, of our market. It's been going for decades. Don't know why. Um, so... That's the first half over there, and we can now move on to the second half of the show, where the real meat and potatoes really is, where we talk about Warhammer Quest. creation of this game and, and what is it so well so the, the game is um, a turn-based strategy game that is very squarely aimed at the people who played uh, either warhammer quest as a board game or loved the warhammer universe or like turn-based strategy games it is very definitely um, a port from the ios game and you know that isn't necessarily what everyone wants to hear but we want to be absolutely clear with everyone as to as to what it is that we've just been doing on Steam. So I know the guys at Rodeo Games in Guildford very well, uh, and I played Warhammer Quest on my iPad and thought this is a really nice game. I really, really enjoy playing it. Spend a lot of time on it. Great game. The uh, inventory thing, I just want to mention this. You, yep. you, just, you basically rotate your iPad and go, ah, yes. oh, there you go. Now it's, it's, it's rather than... You can put it in portrait mode, and then it flips over to your inventory, and you rotate it again, and it goes. It's glorious. Just the little little touches, yes, just the little stuff like that makes it's a whole. Some of its parts and all that. It is it, no, it is a lovely game, and and they yeah. they took a fairly brave decision early on, I think, to 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 sort of render it at pretty high res. The art is all done to a very high quality. I think perhaps yes. that's not so much of an issue now, but when it first came out, you know, I think it was a pretty big game. It was a big download. And, you know, I don't think the guys at Rodeo would mind me saying that, you know, I, I talked to them and said, why haven't you got this game on Steam? Why isn't it on Android? And the reality was the original tech was iOS only tech and they are very smart developers. They're focusing on their future things and didn't want to get distracted kind of doing this sort of work. And as we were just talking about publishing being a fairly high risk venture generally, I said to the guys at Rodeo, you know, we would be really interested in doing that for you because it gives us a chance to make sure we know what we know about publishing is true 
and you know, gives us a chance to find out whether we've um, got big holes in our own knowledge. And, and they you know, very happily went forward on that basis. So we've taken their game, re-engineered it to Unity uh, with a developer in Guildford called Twistplay, who I know very well, who actually did the, the coding. Right. And um, you know, then we've published it on Steam, and hopefully it will be on other platforms in the future. Yeah, because it could go on other things. Uh, you probably want to do that. Yeah, uh, I find I've personally found the whole Xbox One, PS4 generation more and more fascinating uh, uh, as it as time goes on. I think it's very different than before. The the two platforms seem to be very very similar. Do you agree? Uh yes, actually I do. I mean, I've sort of spent time on both of them. And they've obviously got things that they try to use to differentiate them from each other. But the yeah. fundamental experience of playing a game seems pretty similar on both. It is. And, you know, oh. interestingly, neither of them so far have kind of carved out a particular niche or market position, which makes you think, well, if I'm doing this on one, I wouldn't do it on the other one or, or vice versa. So, and of course, this would work very, very, very well on a Wii U. It would do. I haven't actually thought very hard about doing it on a Wii U so far I have to say but I'm going to be going out to GDC soon and hopefully we'll be talking to Nintendo as well so that's definitely something to consider. One of the nice things again for us about about Warhammer Quest as a game is you know it's a turn-based strategy game it was done at high res originally it isn't going to date it isn't going to change it isn't something that you're going to be able to pick you know you're going to pick up in two years time and go wow the world's moved on totally it's not that kind of game at all. That's great yeah you're right you're right it's very the animation that's what struck me. It's the amount of animation that goes on. Like, yeah, there's a lot happening. Yeah. It's, it's it not just the characters. It's everything. It's just like, wow. It's just, when, you kill, when you kill things, like the spiders, they flip over and their little legs all crunch together. Like, it, didn't, it didn't have to do that. No. But no. they did. Yeah. No, that's what I was saying. The guys at Rodeo did a really high-quality game. That, you know, It was definitely right up there on iOS, and we felt... It should be on other platforms. There are other people who want to enjoy those kind of games. And so, therefore, there was good reason to move it over and, and put it on other, on other platforms. And hopefully there will be others in the future. With this game, this is my first proper detailed question about the game. So, you know, don't steal yourself for this one. Uh, I'm going to ask this. I'm a huge tabletop fan. And regular listeners know I'm a member of the world's largest tabletop uh, group called London on Board. Hello, everyone. Um, all of them. We've got 5,000 members and counting. Uh, and uh, we have uh, it meets uh, pretty much every day of the week, almost, where we can. And I don't go to every day of the week. I just go once a week. But um, it's, it's a great board game group. And because of that, this is one of the reasons I want to talk to you about this game, because this is a great transition between what I call flashy, lighty games versus cardboard. Um, where does the tabletop game end and the video game begin, do you think, in Warhammer Quest? Sounds like, sounds like a very trite question, but where do you think the, 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 there's a line crossed? I, I think, for me, because I play quite a lot of board games, the thing that you obviously don't get when you're playing something like Warhammer Quest on your iPad or on PC, you don't get that social element. No. You're playing the game and the game mechanics in that very specific me against the computer universe, however you want to look at it, you don't have everybody else around you. And I think that makes you focus on those detailed mechanics 
in a way that perhaps when you're playing around a board, you don't worry about quite so much. This is true. Um, and there's many times when people are doing, have we been doing that wrong for the past three goes? Yeah. Oh, let's say yeah. go then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we've had people feeding back going, you know, really like to see the dice on screen and things like that. And, and you know, it's like, well, that's true when you're sat around with a group of other people, but we don't feel that's appropriate. Well, I, I, certainly I don't feel it was, and I, I guess Rodeo didn't either because they didn't put it in, you know, that it was appropriate for something when you're playing against the computer. Yeah. It's a slightly different, it's a slightly more focused experience. But fundamentally, obviously, we're trying to match the, the, the original gameplay experience as, as closely as we can. It all depends on the game itself. Sometimes, you know, the dice thing does actually work. Let me give you an example. There's a the Choose Your Own Adventure games, the fighting fantasy games. Yeah. They have dice in the Tin Man games. We've had them on the show. And they have dice rolling across the screen. Why? Because it's appropriate. It makes sense. That's what you did. And, and it, you see the numbers, and those numbers have a direct relation to what's going on on the page. So it makes sense to have those dice. And also it's quite funny, you can actually hit the underneath your iPad or tablet and it actually makes the dice move a little bit <laughs> before they hit the, the screen. So, yeah, it's, but in, the, in Warhammer Quest, and indeed like, um, or in Baldur's Gate, say, or it, there's a relevance there, and also Space Hulk, you don't want to see the dice rolls, really, do you? No, that's what I think. Yeah. To me, like I say, you're, you're sort of playing... Um, you're playing a game which feels a little bit more like, how do I describe it? I wanted to say for a moment there that you were playing a kind of more complete machine and less of a social experience, but that sound, a machine sounds really cold. But, it, but, you know, it's just that more focused experience to me, and I don't think you necessarily want the distraction. That's my view. So my next question is really about your port. So you had this tablet version. And you're going to bring it over to PC, Mac, and Linux. So it means it obviously works on Steam boxes as well, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So I have built my myself, and I have a few friends who have built their own Steam boxes. It's very nice to have them sitting underneath the telly like that, um, with all your vast, vast Steam library just sitting there. Um, anyway, enough of that. What have you done to the game so we the not enhanced it a bit? Yeah, I mean, we didn't. We tried deliberately to not do too much. There are all kinds of reasons for that. I mean, firstly, we like the original game as is. Um, you know, secondly, it's it's obviously based on the original board game, and therefore there are all kinds of issues. Really, not just about whether the balance works, but whether it's authentic. So, having got something that we know works and is authentic, you're really quite reluctant to move away from it. So what we've done is is effectively implemented a PC only, you know, sorry, a PC, but as in Mac, Windows, and Linux. A computer. This is a computer version of the iOS game. Desktop version. There you and go. we've kind of bundled up the different elements differently. And frankly, we got quite a lot of stick on Steam about the way we we went about the pricing, which I thought was largely unfair. But that's the way the world works. I'm going uh, to ask you about the pricing in a moment because I want you to. Do you want to talk about it now? Because oh, it's, okay. it's a question towards the end, but by all means, talk about it. Because I want you to explain it. I'm not going to question it or say because I actually think it's quite neat and it matches with the original board game anyway. Because that was sold in a modular form anyway. So yeah. I think you kind of mirrored that. Am I, am I wrong in saying? Yeah, that? no. We we had to kind of take account of how the original model worked and also what was already available in terms of pricing on iOS. Okay. So what we decided to do was we mirrored the um, sort of iOS 
buying more, um, you know, the sort of base pack and buying more stuff model. Um, we felt that if you look on iOS, a lot of people just bought a lot of stuff in one go. So we have one basic pack, which is sort of, it's all three of the areas in the iOS game plus various other components. And then we t- kind of reduced the aggregate price of all of those because we weren't giving people the two ninety nine option. So, you know, it's actually cheaper than the iOS version. And then we also felt that because PC buyers like to just buy everything and actually looking at the data on on um, iPad and iPhone, a lot of people had just bought everything anyway. Yeah. It seemed reasonable and sensible to go, here's an option to just have everything in one go. Yeah. So that meant that the the sort of two price points that you could go in at were higher than iOS. And a lot of people just looked at the two price points on PC and went, well, this is higher than iOS and it's essentially a port, so we're being ripped off. But actually, if you looked at what you were getting, you were getting more content for the money than you did on the iOS version. And an improved interface. And an improved interface. And we did did tweak a few things. And it looks prettier, slightly. It does does look pretty. (laughs) We did make one definite mistake there, which we fully admit was a mistake. We... Within the original um, iOS implementation, there was the ability to buy more gold. Oh. And that was in there to allow people to sort of accelerate their gameplay. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, it's I know. It's a fairly standard thing to do on iOS. We left it in in the oh. PC version and got a lot of stick for it. Yeah. And we took it out, but by then we'd already got the stick. And uh, kind of, we got that wrong. We're sorry, guys. We should have fi- fixed that. Yeah, that's that's not but, part. So you know that, and you, well, hindsight is always twenty twenty. But the the PC culture, or sorry, computer culture, is different. You know that kind of buying, unless it's a Facebook game, <laughs> buying of stuff like that of time and accelerating things is pretty much frowned upon. So. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's slightly odd because what we actually did was we took out the gold buying. Right. And just effectively re-released, you know, we just did a pack, it was just an update. Yeah. Uh, you could no longer buy this thing you had before. So <laughs> we were actually slightly concerned that some people who bought the game would turn around and go, well, you've taken away something that I'd already paid for. Oh, right. I see. Because well, actually, yeah. genuinely, that's a fair point of view. We, we yeah, basically it's, did. It's a bit um, crazy, though, but yeah, go on. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, we didn't subsequently we didn't change the game balance as a result because the game wasn't balanced to just try and milk you for loads of extra gold it's just one of those things that's acceptable in mobile it's an acceleration measure if you want to just get on with it then this is a way you can do it yeah i mean there are some games that do suffer from that i mean yeah we all know the dungeon keeper debacle yeah absolutely i mean (laughs) i I can understand entirely why players might sit there and go well if they put this in that's because they're expecting us all to buy lots of gold yeah one we didn't make much money out of the gold and no question with hindsight it was a mistake we can do nothing but say sorry we shouldn't have put that in and we took it out and fixed it but that's the way well the world works no i'm giving you a platform here to to talk about that openly and say look yeah hey you screwed up but like you said it earlier on the show this was your first dipping the toe of the water of being a publisher. Absolutely, this is, you can afford to take make these mistakes and make you know do make decisions that you know on retrospect. Ah, uh, yeah, no, nah, no, because this is reeks of dungeon keeper. No one wants that in the PC went land. Um, yeah, absolutely. Sorry and, to bring that comparison; it's probably unfair. No, no, that's okay. And I think <laughs> one of the things that we we've done with this is you know we were expecting to deal with the community a lot and to be on the forums a lot and i think the people who were playing the game and 
and and were sitting there on Steam really appreciated that. So even though we we got some things wrong, people I think appreciated the fact that we were fixing it and we were talking to people about it, and you know we fixed bugs quickly and generally answered people's questions. And you know we've learned that stuff, so that was good. Brilliant. Well, Ian, thank you so much for your time. I don't want to keep you any further. Just to recap, it's out. It's been out on iOS for some time. You can get it on an iPhone and a, a tablet, or indeed phablet now if you got a iPhone 6, the size of the bloody Belgium, that thing. Uh, but it's also out on PC, uh, Mac, and Linux via Steam. Is there any plans to release it any other way? Or uh, It's definitely going to be coming to other platforms. We haven't got any definite dates. It's also on the Humble Store now, and we'll sort of bring it to the other PC stores. Well, good old uh, games and stuff like that, I was thinking. Yeah, absolutely, that's the plan. And then we should be bringing it to other formats, but which ones probably needs me to have a few more meetings with people yet. Indeed. So, uh, whenever that happens, I'll be sure to uh, tweet about uh, when we'll keep keep an eye on Warhammer Quest and as it moves through the internet realm of uh, video games and what have you. Um, wish you the best of luck in your future endeavours. Um, lovely to have back on the show with some new stuff when you you've, you've delved into whatever it is you're looking into. Uh, yeah, have a great time. I'm so happy to do that, Chris. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be lovely to have you back on and uh, have a great time at GDC. Will do. Okay. All right. Thanks very much. And so ends another episode of the Sausage Factory. Do leave us an iTunes review, and you can also don't forget listen to us on Stitcher.com. So just go to Stitcher.com, and you can stream the show from there. You just look up the Sausage Factory, and you can find us. That'd be great. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris O'Regan. No apostrophes. And uh, if you want to email me any feedback on the show or actually you're a developer you listen to the show and want your game featured on it please do email me at chris at spong.com bye